Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out all that the Dice Tower has to offer. They have a brand spanking new website that is fully indexed, so if you're looking for perhaps reviews or commentary about any game, just go in and type in the name of the game in the search field, and you'll get a complete list of everything that everyone on the Dice Tower Network has contributed regarding that game. It's truly something special for gamers. So go and check out Dicetower.com. And also, while you're there, check out all the other great sister podcasts in the network. The Longview is also generously sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Gamesurplus is your first and best choice if you're looking to make a board game purchase online. Uh, the reasons why are multifold. They have fantastic prices. They have a wonderful import inventory. For example, right now as I record this, they have the new copy of uh, Witch's Brew. Uh, which is called Broom Service, and it includes the expansions that were originally published and have been out of print for so long. Well, Velma over there at Game Surplus has got it in stock right now. They also have other hard-to-find imports like 1862, Railway Mania. They have uh, Virsindas Volk and other great titles. So if you're looking for something unique, if you're looking for something hard to find, go and check out Gamesurplus.com. Their prices are fantastic, their customer service is legendary, and their packaging and shipment is super fast and super secure so go check out gamesurplus.com and thanks to them for their continued support of the long view i also want to send a special shout out to my local game store the gamer's edge in stroudsburg pennsylvania if you live in northeastern pa or northern new jersey southern new york come on down and check out all that they have to offer they have a huge selection of board games a friendly and knowledgeable staff lots of open table space uh, they have, of course, a full line of service for Magic and Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh!, but they also have over 500 board games in stock and more every day. So if you're looking for a great board game at a great store at a great price, go and check out The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, conveniently located off of Interstate 80 on Main Street. And if you do decide to go and stop by, please be sure to tell them The Long View sent you. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and today I am very pleased to be joined by two special guests. I have Mike Walker and Lee McConnell. Uh, both of these gentlemen uh, were kind enough to reach out to me and uh, ask if they could talk about one of their favorite games. Uh, this is the game Polis. Uh, this is a game that has been around for quite some time. It is a two-player-only game. And it is a game that is made by uh, Fran Diaz, uh, released in 2012. And it originally was kind of like an import. It was kind of hard to get. And then it received a, a wider printing, I believe, by Mercury Games and made its way over here. Uh, the game is listed as playing for about 90 minutes and ages 14 and up. And it's a, a kind of a historical kind of themed game. And so when they asked me whether or not, you know, I would be interested in doing a show, I was like, of course, and was very grateful to the two of them for reaching out. So, uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for agreeing to be on the show tonight. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. We're excited. Not a problem at all. It's always nice to uh, hear from fresh new voices here on the show. And uh, I understand that this is a game that is uh, uh, very popular with the two of you. And it's a game that the two of you have explored together, yes? It is. Um, we get to play a lot of two-player games together, but this one really captivated our attention. And we've given it a lot of uh, love. I think 25 to 30 plays now. That sounds about right. We've played a lot of it. It's, it's, it's a pretty amazing game. 
So which one of you is responsible for going down this rabbit hole? And in other words, uh, who, uh, you know, which of you two uh, kind of discovered the game first? Uh, how did you first hear about it? What, you know, captured your attention? What can you tell us about that? I found the game in searching BGG and just being aware of some new releases and following the reviews of others, especially a, a group that plays up in New York that had played it and uh, had spoken well of it. And that just put it on my radar, and I followed it ever since. And as it came out, I found a copy available um, from Asylum Games, the original publisher, before it was republished by Mercury. Um, I grabbed that copy. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about it at that time uh, in the forums. Since then, it's grown. And uh, I'm telling you, from the first play on, even just reading the rules, it was, it was an amazing experience. Well, thanks for sharing that with me. So this is a, a theme that, that particularly captured your interest, this Athens versus Sparta thing. Is that kind of what caught your eye, or was it more about the mechanics of the game or the designer of the game? Because I, I think this is a relatively new designer, yes? Yes. In fact, it was a, uh, from what I understand, it was a print-and-play that was very successfully received that um, <clears throat> he made into a uh, published uh, game afterwards because of all the... Um, because of all the great feedback he'd gotten about his design. And, and in speaking to him later, he said he's afraid to uh, come out with a follow-up because the first one had done so well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sometimes happens. So who's the uh, history buff among the two of you, would you say? I, I think we both are. I mean, I was uh, wound up with a degree in history, but I think we both really enjoy, enjoy digging into the past occasionally. Well, fantastic. So this game, you are either playing uh, either the, the sort of city-states of Athens, uh, you know, Confederation, if you kind of want to think of it that way, or you're playing Sparta. And you're trying to kind of gain control of the, the whole kind of Mediterranean, kind of classical Greek sort of world. And so this is a game that is... It feels like it should be a dudes on a map kind of a game where you're going to be kind of going after each other and fighting battles and, you know, you have your naval power and your troops and whatnot. But it actually ends up feeling very different from that. And I think that's one of the things that I recall kind of being taken by is that it's sort of uh, abstracted a little bit uh, in, in a way to kind of... Uh, make the gameplay involve a little bit more than just kind of punching each other in the face. And yet, uh, it still feels very thematic. So what can you guys tell us about your experience with the game as it relates to the theme? I think that's a very fair assessment because just from uh, general appearances, it looks like you've got a war game, you know, maybe a, a lightly themed war game. But it quickly turns into a... a, a a euro where you're trying to establish an economy, um, uh, manage your resources, and use all of that in support of the war. Would you agree with that as well? Oh, for sure. It's got, like you said, you know, at first glance, just looking at the map and everything, it, it looks like it would set up as a traditional war game. And obviously, pitting Sparta against Athens, that would make sense. But it really does become very euro-y from that point of you've got a ton of resource management. And, you know, there's definitely some direct direct conflict we've had some games that we've had a lot of conflict but we've had some games that we kind of danced around each other we're doing just a little dance around the map so it really that game evolves in so many different directions i it, every time i finish the game i go home with a big smile on my face and i'm thinking about it the next day just because every <laughs> game is so so different and mike makes a good point there are games where you can avoid war avoid conflict and we sought that out before, and it's been amazing how it plays so much differently. 
So before we get any uh, further into this, would one of the two of you gentlemen like to maybe take a little stab at explaining for people who haven't played the game a little bit about how the game is played? You know, what, what are the kind of basic mechanisms and what are you trying to accomplish in the game? I'll let, uh, I'll let Mike speak to that. Sure, absolutely. Um, like was mentioned earlier, it's a, obviously just a straight two-player game. Uh, one player is taking Athens and one player is taking Sparta. Um, having said that, both sides really have most of the same abilities. It's really through the design that gives a feel of playing Athens versus Sparta. Uh, one of the key parts of the game is that battles are fought very similarly, but Athens has the advantage when you're fighting on sea, and Sparta has the advantage fighting on land. So that's one of the main areas that it does give a very thematic feel that you, even though you're playing the same units and everything, it really does feel as though Sparta has the advantage on land and Athens at sea. Um, Having said all that... And you um, do feel that sometimes. And you do feel that sometimes. (laughs) Uh, The map is divided into zones. Uh, The water has different areas. The land has different areas. Within the land areas, there's cities. um, And each area has different resources that are available. So one area might be very food-rich. Another area might be very silver-rich. Another area might have a lot of... um, uh, wood or iron right so there's various different resources but different areas have different things so you need just for instance iron to create troops makes sense you need wood to create boats so as sparta knowing that i'm more land oriented i might be fighting more towards the iron and athens might be fighting more towards um towards getting wood together for ships having said that you need both types of troops and in the meantime you need to feed those troops so both sides are fighting food is probably the resource that's most delicate and difficult to get and the one you're fighting the most over yeah while you're talking about that i just want to kind of say by way of introduction as well that uh this is a game that i had gotten early on in the original uh, the original release of it and uh, you know i really do remember how tight the resources were in particular as you said food i think uh what is there like a it's almost like an area is it sicily or something there's like an area down in the That's corner correct. of the board that is you know wonderful to try to kind of snag for food but difficult to get to difficult to hold everything about this game was kind of difficult the management of it the resource management you know i think a lot of people when they hear the the term resource management they kind of think oh yeah i collect stuff and then i use it well this game Resource management is not like a given. It's not a question of, well, I'm just going to go over here and get it. There's a whole logistical kind of uh, considerations that you have to take into account in order to try to even get there, uh, in order to try to get the resources, and then what the uh, conflict can do to you know you in game terms is you're trying to also manage a whole different resource, which is victory points in this game. And so it, it is an extremely tight game. It's uh, rather unforgiving, I think, in, in many ways as well. And that was kind of my experience with it. I kind of felt it was extremely tight. Would you gentlemen agree with that? Or do you think perhaps this is something that appears that way at first, but actually is not quite as bad as it might seem at first blush? Because that's one of the things I really wanted to ask about this. Unforgiving, yes. Um, tight resources, yes. I can see that just jumping into this, you can understand the game, you can grasp all the mechanics, you can play it somewhat well, but to really do well, you've got to have all those tight, interconnected, complex things working well for you. You've got to be able to 
manage your area of the map, control the resources you need to get to, protect those resources from being taken over by the other player, and then being able to convert those in the proper ratios that you need to be able to feed your troops, to sustain your troops, and also to get what you call the victory points, which are known as prestige in the game. Because one of the one of the key components of this game, which is unlike other games that I've seen, is that you're accumulating victory points, which are called prestige, and that prestige is also being used throughout the game to allow you to make moves, to attack. And so not only are you accumulating and using this this valuable resource all throughout the game so that it ebbs and flows on your uh, player uh, board there, it's also your um, determination of how, how well you uh, perform in later rounds, uh, if you have the advantage to start or not, um, if you're able to accomplish uh, certain activities in the game. So just the, the interconnectedness of the resources, the tight management of it, it's... It's it's thrilling when you do it correctly, but it is tough to grok at first. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Mike, would you agree with that? Because, you know, I, I really kind of felt this was one of the few games that I played where I got about a third of the way into the game and realized that I was almost hopelessly, like, I was in a hole that was so deep and so big that I just kind of looked at Lloyd, who I was playing it with, and I was like, I think I'm done. I don't think there's anything I can do. I have, like, no prestige. I have no food. My cities, I think, if I'm recalling correctly, like, your cities will, will begin to rebel against you. You could lose them. Um, and I just had made some fundamental mistakes earlier in the game and got myself into kind of, like, this feel of a death spiral. Um <laughs> and and I kind of like we we kind of just called the game at that point. We're like, I don't think there's anything you can do, Jeff. And I'm like, I don't think there is. Have you run across that happening to you, or am I just that bad at this game? Which is also a possibility. You know, Jeff. Uh, the answer to that is both. Um, realistically, I know that we saw the exact scenario you're discussing the first couple of games for sure. It is a you know unforgiving game from. From you can get yourself in a pickle and it's done. Having said that, what makes the game magical is I, I can't describe in the 30-odd games I've played with Lee how many times that I thought my game was done. I literally looked at the board, looked at him, and said, it's done. I can't beat you. And That's exactly what I was thinking when he was bringing yeah, this up. Because t- Ten minutes later, I found just the slightest back door and managed to squeeze through it. <laughs> and the next thing you know, man, the tide has turned completely. And all of a sudden, he's on the ropes. And I mean... Like no game I've ever played, I'm literally minutes from quitting the game, and 15 minutes later, I, I've got it firmly in hand. Um, and there's so much truth to that. I can think of three instances where you or I were on the ropes, and we even said to one another, oh, that's it, that's game. And and just a few plays later, something gave. There was just enough wiggle room for you to accumulate what you needed to get the resources, to get the prestige, and it just turned the whole tide of the battle for you. And as frustrating as it is to be on the receiving of that, it's still exhilarating to play that and see that happen, even if it's for your opponent. So this is a game that requires some commitment, and it requires some time to almost study it and play it and have those, those experiences before you can fully understand it. Uh, would you agree with that? Actually, Jeff, to some degree, I wouldn't. Um, yeah, I wouldn't the, the only thing that I would mention, and you mentioned at the beginning that the game lists at 90 minutes. Um, I can, this is my favorite game I've ever played, but I can say with confidence, Lee and I have never finished a game that finished in 90 minutes. Right. Um, and I do think that's a, a valid point, partly from just having to sit back and look at the board and get your head around what's going on. Um, having said that, very early on, you start seeing 
You do. You will make one or two games like you're describing that you just got yourself in a pickle. But you can look back a couple turns before and say, oh, I should have gathered wheat there. I was going to, but I decided to wait and my opponent took it while I was waiting. I need to grab wheat next time, just as a for instance. So you do start learning really quickly the couple there are some things that you can try and there's some things that you need to be sure you get done. And so there really is a balance between, you know, attempting to go attack that city or attempting to attack my opponent and saying, look, I have to, I have to be sure I've got eight food and three prestige going into next round before I start looking at some other stuff. So it's just a delicate balance, but I would suggest it's not a five or 10 game practice before you finally start getting the hang of it. I feel like after a game or two, we had a real grasp of just the basics of the game, if that makes sense. But I, but I can understand Jeff, how you mentioned um, having played, I don't know, a third of the way through the game and, and feeling that the game was over for you. And that can, that can be a bit defeating thinking that I've spent all this time, put this effort into it. And this was the outcome. But if you get past that point, try it a second time, try it a third time, it will really come to you. You'll see the, how the intricacies kind of uh, form and like, like uh, Mike mentioned, how you have to do certain things in certain order and not maybe, maybe not explore as much, maybe cut back in your exploration, concentrate what you've got stuff like that. But it, if you can get past that initial surge of, ah, what, what's going on here? Um, and just give it a little bit more time. Then it really, the game opens up for you. Right. Right. Well, I appreciate you guys sharing that perspective because this is one of the things that I wanted to talk about. Um, there are games like this that I've played before. Um, when I was uh, kind of writing back and forth with Mike before we recorded, I talked about another game that I feel has some similarities to this, which is Antiquity, where Antiquity is one of those games where if you don't, if you get caught and you make some miscalculations early in the game, uh, you can get yourself into that position where you kind of feel like, well, there's nothing I can do. You know, in antiquity, you, your city can become completely choked with graves, which is kind of thematic and sad all at the same time. And <laughs> right. meanwhile, your countryside is polluted and devoid of any resources that you can get to because you can't even make a cart or a wagon or whatever it is you need to go out and harvest them. And, uh, you know, you can get into that, that death spiral in that game as well. And there's definitely people out there where that's more of a feature than a flaw, you know. And I think it's important to kind uh, of yeah. talk about that where, you know, the, the, the idea of not being able to play the game optimally the first or second time is something that people are really looking for. You know, I think about a game like Pax Perferiana. That's another one that the first few times you play it, you know, the first two or three times you're really going to be kind of struggling figuring out what am I supposed to do? How do I, how do I accomplish my goals? How do I protect myself? But then after you play it a few times, you really start to, it opens up. I think it's a term uh, that you use, Lee. It kind of opens up for you, and then you don't feel as constricted. So, you know, I, I just kind of want to let you guys make that case because this is a game that I think when I look at its rating, which is quite high, I mean, on, on BGG, it has it an 8 rating. Yeah, 8.01. Yes, yes. But it only has 924 ratings. Now, that's right. not like, you know, that's not a terrible thing. But this game has been out since 2012. And with a rating that high and a number of ratings that low, that's usually an indication to me that this is one of those games that is really kind of connecting with a core group of fans, sounds like you guys, 
and that is just a, a wonderful experience for them. But others like me tried it a couple of times and were just like, oh, my God, I can't do this. You know, it's, it's just too restrictive. And I think, <laughs> you know, for me now, it's funny because as I was recording this before I had you guys on, when I recorded the intro and all the things, I, I try not to make my guests sit through that if I don't have to. But as I'm recording, GameSurplus.com has this in stock. Uh, as a matter of fact, she's got it listed as, you know, like a special. I think she's got it for like $38 or something. And I, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking like, hmm, you know, I paid 60 for it the first time I got it. And I could not right. figure out how to make that game work. And I'm like, well, I'm going to be talking with these guys and, and maybe I should pick it up again. You know, and I, I can't tell you how many times I've had to pick up a game after recording uh, with people who really know the game well. Um, so if I don't end up grabbing it after this show, then uh, I wanted to let people out there know that uh, there there are still copies of this thing available that are out there that you can grab. So um, I think we agree that this is a game that... And everything... Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Everything you've, everything you've spoken to, I think I've always um, emphasized as well to others, is this is a game that really deserves a wider audience. Um, and perhaps the... I'm not going to call it a steep learning curve, but maybe the initial learning curve of the game is off-putting, but um, it is well worth exploring the game. And, and I think, I'd say for the first five to ten games, I, I really was in an exploration mode for this game. Um, of course, you're trying to follow strategies and uh, taking, taking advantage of uh, tactical uh, opportunities that come up throughout the game, but um, <clears throat> if you're able to put in a little bit of effort, I, and I'm going to say just play it at least two to three games, Right. After that, it will, like you, like I mentioned before, open up to you. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that's kind of funny because some games, when you play them for the first time and they're kind of tight, you kind of feel like, you know, the game kind of, uh, you know, wiggles its finger at you and goes, uh-uh, you know, that's not what you should. <laughs> this game, like, this game's like a full slap across the face. <laughs> like, it just goes right across. It was just like, you idiot, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and then you're kind of like, wait a minute, what happened? Um, but, yeah, no, I appreciate now, I, that. I do want to make a point, though, that um, – a lot of games will feel that way because there are ambiguities in ambiguities in the rules. Right. There are hard concepts to understand. This game is none of that. The rules make sense. Um, thematically, things play well together. Um, it's not hard to understand the rules. There might be one or two things that people have issues with, um, understanding uh, movement of troops through uh, contested areas or through uh, areas that are already at capacity. Um, and I've seen... Uh, f- uh, arguments on the forums about how to how to resolve those issues i think those have all been resolved in any facts that came out so except for maybe one or two outline cases the rules make sense it is easy to to understand how to play the game it's just understanding how to play it well yeah yeah i would totally agree with that and i'm glad you made that point um because the rules weren't very hard to to grok at all i mean i remember reading it no. and thinking okay this is no different than so many other games like this I've, I've tried, but, ooh, you know, it's got this kind of card-driven combat system. That looks like that could be interesting. And it's got this Proxenos thing. That looks kind of cool. You know, I can kind of buy the allegiance of a city instead of having to fight it. I can kind of bribe them and just kind of quite, ooh, this is kind of neat. Um, so, like you said, all of the rules are very nicely done. Uh, I, I really didn't have a problem with understanding how to do things. It was just what to do and how to do it well. So, uh, I want to also kind of circle back, if you guys don't mind. Uh, you both mentioned kind of the asymmetrical kind of nature of the game. And right now, that's kind of a hot thing. That's kind of a buzzword for a lot of people is asymmetry, you know, where you have slightly varying kind of abilities, powers, 
Um, what would you guys, you mentioned that Sparta seems a little stronger on land. Athens seems a little stronger at sea. Is there anything else about the game that you feel kind of um, gives you that asymmetrical kind of feeling? Or is it just that kind of difference between those two areas? You know, it, it's, it really does. The way the, the battles work by playing cards, like you mentioned, but you play with the same set of cards. We play with the same deck, and you deal out cards relative to the number of troops you have to each side. So I'm playing with the same amount of cards. What makes Sparta more powerful on land is they get the opportunity to go first in the attack, and there's a little bit of advantage to being on the attack. Where flip side, when you're on the water at sea, Athens gets the opportunity. So again, using the same cards, but they get to make the attack first. Um, so it really does lend without getting too technical or difficult and the battles just on the surface are something very simple, but with the way it allows Athens to lead on water and Sparta to leave on land, it really does, you know, if, if Lee is playing Greece or playing, uh, Athens and he puts too big a force on land with Sparta, I feel comfortable going over there and fighting him on land. If Lee is playing Athens and he's got that area you mentioned that has a lot of food blocked off from me, I'm not comfortable running over there and starting a battle with him. I kind of have to cede that area to him generally uh, because he's got a pretty good advantage at sea. So it's something that does add a level of – it makes it feel correct without adding any difficulty or unneeded complications to it. What would you guys say about the battle system? Could you give us a little bit more detail on that? Because I remember the card play in that being alternately interesting and thrilling and ultimately frustrating all at the same time. Uh, what can you tell Can you kind of explain to people how the battles work? Yeah, there are cards. So it's a card-driven uh, battle that takes place where you're dealt hands of cards. You've got cards that represent, uh, represent phalanxes, cavalry. You've got archers. And each one has a strength of uh, zero, one, or two. And really, it's just a, you're trying to match up cards against your opponent. So you're going to pick two cards. Um, your opponent's going to pick two cards. You're going to reveal the cards you've revealed. And the attacker has the advantage so that the defender has to match up their cards against the attacker's cards. If they don't match up, units are lost on the board. Um, the most uh, units you're going to have in one territory on the board is five. And so if you happen to lose two of your five cubes in a board, I mean, in, in, a, in a region, either ships or, or uh, um, the uh, soldiers, that's, that's a huge loss. So that, again, re, uh, reinforces what Mike was saying about having the first turn advantage in the attacking. If, uh, if you lose two of your five land troops, that's two less troops that are going to collect resources for you later in the game. Um, so the, the card-driven combat is very simple, but it's also very nuanced. Um, there's, a, there's a variety of cards in the game, and everybody knows what the odds are of the cards being present. It's even listed on each card of how many there are of each one. So that you know, oh, um, for example, I know there's three archers in the deck. I've got two of them in my hand. I know that he can only match up against with one of them, so I know I've got a defeat with one of these cards. If he doesn't have the, the other third card, I know I've got a, a total defeat with this little attack. Um, but it's very surprising, even with something that simple of a of a card mechanic, how surprises come up, how how you can outguess and outthink one another in just a little simple combat re- resolution. What would you say about that, Mike? Yeah, no, I think that's very fair. I mean, it, it does. Again, the simplicity of the battle is something you and I could sit down. I could explain to you in thirty seconds, deal some cards, and we could fight out a, an imaginary battle, trouble free. The the thing is exactly the scenario that Lee just described. If he winds up attacking me and I lose both of my troops, to refill your hand, just say we both had you draw troop draw cards relative to the number of troops you have in an area. If we both had started a sea battle with five boats and five boats, we both would start with five cards. Lee attacks me and just theoretically wins both. 
uh, we discard our two cards that we just played, but I get zero cards and he gets two cards. I lost two troops, so I, only, I don't draw any cards. Now I'm on the attack, but I'm only playing three against his five. And keep in mind, he's trying to match what I play. So now I've only got three cards to get around his five cards. I'm going to play two cards, and he's got more opportunities to block those. So it really does, again, add to that level, even though we're playing evenly matched cards theoretically really does leave a spot where the attacker has the advantage. And that's really nice for most um, dice roll mechanics that resolve combat or, or uh, matrices um, because there's a, there's a guessing element. Um, you might do well in battle because you've got some cards you know that are uh, limited in the deck and you might have a, um, a majority of those cards so you know that you're going to do well. But you might take a risk with some lowly attacking cards just just on the chance that they don't have those two cards in their five cards in their hand. And if you're able to get those two through and save your stronger cards for later in, in the battle round, you're even that much stronger. So there's a lot of um, a lot of mystery to the battle that is really, uh, really neat to see how it plays out. And I mean, every game we have battles, and there are times when we get through with a battle, we're like, I did not see that coming. I, I can't believe it resolved like that. <laughs> so uh, if, I, if I'm understanding you guys correctly, you're saying that if the defender can match the card of the attacker, like phalanx to phalanx, that blocks it. But if you Correct. can't, then you're, you're going to take the hit from that, right? That's perfect. That's correct, but there's also one more thing to that. The uh, strength of the card. The, the phalanx can be a strength one or a strength two, and even though the defender can match up card for card, if I played a two-strength phalanx and they only played a one-strength phalanx, they survived the battle and didn't lose a troop, but because my troop's strength was stronger, I'm going to get prestige, which is that victory point yep. um, resource. So I'm going to get an advantage from the battle for having done and performed uh, better at it, and that prestige even one little prestige is crucial in this game there is there, we talked about the resources of wheat to feed your troops is important the other one for prestige is so important because you need every bit of prestige you can get to uh, accommodate yourself in this game to do what you need to do and and to win right the prestige actually kind of allows you to take more actions if i'm recalling correctly yes like you get to do more things if you're willing to spend some of that prestige and that really is what makes this game amazing. It's just the, how the game synchronizes everything. Exactly what you described. The prestige are victory points, but it's also what you're going to use to move troops. It's what you're going to use to collect stuff in territories. So you wind up, a lot of your actions are through that prestige. So it's, you're having to basically spend victory points just to move your troops to different areas. So you really do have to balance. There's so much... Another thing Lee mentioned earlier are your troops. The amount of troops are also what's going to decide how much you're able to, how many resources you're able to collect in a territory. So if I'm about to collect in a territory with my five troops and Lee comes over and attacks me and knocks me down to three troops, I've lost 40% of the resources I was going to collect. I mean, there's, like I said, there's, there's a really neat, again, for a game that's very it's a, simple. It's a nice, rich balance to everything. Yeah. Well, you know, everything is almost equally important. You know, I mean, you, you there's really... I don't recall any of the resources being ones that, you know, people don't care about. Let me give you an example of what I mean. If you played, uh, if you've ever played the game Agricola, uh, for the most part, read is kind of, I don't want to say useless, but it's kind of totally unnecessary unless you're looking to, you know, build onto your house or or do something like that. You know, the, the primary resources in Agricola 
I would argue are wood, especially in the beginning is wood and, you know, getting some wheat so you can plant it and start to get some grain coming in, um, you know, things like that. But, you know, uh, reeds, eh, you know, if I can get some nice reeds, fine. If not, I'm not going to worry about it because I'm not, I'm not even thinking about expanding my home right now. I don't really need the reeds for the roof. In this game, I can't think of any resource that isn't really needed all the time. Like, there's nothing that I can kind of ignore. Um, there's other card play in this game, though, isn't there? there there's card play where you're going to be uh, able to build, I think it's like structures or temples or something. Um, it's been a while since I played. But those require, I think, other resources as well. Can you guys uh, speak to that a little bit? What, am, am I totally misremembering, or is that uh, still there? They're not cards, they're tiles. Yes. You're going to, you're going to build projects. Um, in other games, they're like wonders and stuff like that, but in this game, they're projects. Um, the projects are all thematic to the city, so you might do a project that honors a um, philosopher or an artist, or you might do a project that creates a statuary or an or a, uh, architecture for that building, for that uh, territory. And each of those require different sets of resources. It might take um, food or grapes or olives or wood or iron or silver those are those are the resource of the game and like you said they are all tightly interconnected in how they're used in the game none of them are useless or less important than the others except for i would say wheat wheat is the most important by far silver probably right after that but you're not you're going to use every resource you collect and if I'm correct, those projects, those kind of uh, things that you're building in the cities, those give you uh, prestige usually. And, of course, uh, the prestige is what allows you to kind of do what we've been talking about all along, which is gives you more flexibility on your turn, the ability to extend your turn, the ability to get yourself really set up well for the following kind of round. Um, am I remembering that correctly as well, guys? Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, it's uh, it's again, it's another place that it just it comes full circle in the game. If you're struggling getting prestige, well, the main place you're going to get prestige one of two is either attacking a city, um, you get prestige once you take the city, or like you mentioned earlier, using your proxenos to come bribe a city to come over to your side. Both both of those places are the main places that you'll gain prestige, which again allows you to move, allows you to collect goods, you know, resources or whatever. Um, then another way is using some resources you've collected earlier. If you do get pinned in and you're really in a spot where you don't have a place to attack a city because your opponent has you pinned in, you can then go buy one of those projects and have prestige waiting for you at the next turn or even some for this turn. So it's one of the cool things that we kind of mentioned earlier is that, I, again, that you can be in a really difficult spot, but I would say 95% of the time, there's a way to wiggle out of that. And that, you know, because there's so many, again, I'm using resources now to buy a project. Now I've got prestige. Even though my opponent had me blocked in, now I've got some room to wiggle again. So. And one of our last, I think it was the game before last that we played, I thought I was doing very well in having you. I was playing Athens. He, I was in control of the seas. He was part on control of the land. And I'd done a really good job of, keeping him away from his major uh, resources that he needed to get to the wheat in uh, Sicily in the far, the, the breadbasket area of the map. Um, I had pinned him in on the land so that he was stuck in his little uh, area. But at the end of the turn, he was able to use his resources to buy two projects, which gave him additional capital in the next turn in form in, in the form of uh, uh, prestige that he needed. <clears throat> and that just got him, just got his whole engine started for the next turn. 
and really kind of undermined everything that I had done to to keep him <laughs> controlled on the on the map. If I'd have done a better job to keep him to, to have uh, maybe um, purchased these projects away from him before he had a chance to, that would have that would have helped me. But I I neglected that, and that was a real turnaround moment in that game for us. Yeah, Jeff, that that was one of the games that I was about ready to call quit, and just hung in long enough to see what happened next. And twenty minutes later, I was I was ahead of the game. I mean it. It's an amazing game. I don't know. I've I've never played anything like it. You and I traded a couple of emails about that. But uh, when people ask me what it's like, you know, it's got bits of different games. It's got some Euro. It's got some light war to it. But I can't think of any game that I've played that's remotely similar to it. I mean, there's nothing quite like it. And you and I have spoken about um, the ability to come back in the game. And some people might see that as a, as a swingy feature of a game. And when I think of something like that, I think of something like um, the game Omen, where that's a very swingy game. You can be grid. up and down. Yeah, you can be up and down and, and back and forth this game. This one, when when the um, your advantage changes in the game, I don't see that as being swingy at all. It, it, you've uh, used your resources well right. to put yourself in a position to turn yourself around. Yeah, I, I played it enough to, to totally agree with that statement because it's not swingy in that there's there's luck that is going to change your fortune, right? If you've Correct. got me in a stranglehold and I managed to break it, it was through my own will and my own skill and my own... For- like, it wasn't just because, oh, look, this card flipped and now, you know, you have to let me go. That's not the way the game works. So, you know, if, if you manage to break yourself out of a situation, you know, uh, like Mike is talking about, that's because you were able to see your way down a path that was going to enable you to break that stranglehold because otherwise you're, you probably are going to be done. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm glad you pointed that out because I have heard that said about this game before and I never understood it because to me, swinginess implies uh, a high random or luck factor. And, and this really is, in this game, the only random aspects is a uh, four-sided die, which is used to resolve battles. When you try to attack a uh, city to take it over, you've got a roll to, to, to gauge your success. That's one element of luck. The other one is there are cards that are used at the beginning of each of the four turns of the game that are event, that are, that are uh, thematically appropriate. Um, perhaps a foreign power requires the assistance of Sparta in a battle, so Sparta will gain some silver at the start of a turn, and you're, there's usually a benefit to both sides or perhaps a uh, benefit and a disadvantage to one side. But except for those minor things that are uh, turn-based um, event cards that happen at the beginning of every the every one of the first four turns um, or the, the rolling of the die for combat. Those are the only two luck elements in the whole game. Right. Yeah. And, and the, you know, when you think about luck with a die, uh, unless you're going to flip a coin, a four sided is about as small of a, of a, uh, a small of a range of luck as you're going to get using dice. So uh, I agree. That's, that's not really that much. And those cards as event cards, I got to tell you, I, I really, I kind of felt like they could be like a, one of those, oh, dang it kind of moments, but I never felt like I was losing or I was completely hosed because of that. Um, you know, right now that there's another game that I think is analogous to this one, which is Hands in the Sea. Uh, this is one that uh, I've had the, the fortune to be able to play. Um, and, you know, it's a, it was on Kickstarter. And this is kind of a Rome versus Carthage kind of thing. And they have event cards in there as well. Um, the designer has included that, but those event cards, I, I've kind of, you know, posted a, a few things about those and those seem actually, uh, uh, in line with what people 
think of when they think they're a little too powerful, a little too swinging. I didn't think the cards in, in Polis were really game-changing. They were they were kind of like speed bumps or detours, you know, or, or they were like sudden like, hey, look, you know, I found $10 laying in the street. Yay. You know, it's, it's going to make you smile, but it's not enough to win the game for you. And I also think exactly what exactly what you said but they also add just a little bit of uh, incorporating the theme back into the game you'll play a turn where you're just pushing cubes around the board pretty much you know you're you you know what the that their ships or their soldiers and you and you're you're playing with that in mind but at the start of each turn you get a card that really brings in the historical aspect of the game and and kind of resets you and rethinking that you are playing sparta versus athens again so one of the things that we talked about before we started recording, since you're mentioning that kind of the, the richness of the, the history and the narrative of the game, right? Um, sometimes you get lost in the mechanics of it, but there's these nice reminders in the game. And I totally agree with that statement that, you know, is going to pull you back down into the theme, like what it is you're actually trying to do. It's my understanding that uh, one of you gentlemen had read a book that you felt kind of really helped you appreciate and, and maybe understand the game uh, a little bit more. Um, could you tell Tell us a little bit about that book in case there's people who are listening who might want to check that out. Yes, and, and this is another aspect of uh, war games, or I think this game is called a, a Waro, a, a combination of war euro game. This is another aspect of games like that that really encourage you to look at the backstory and the history involved. And that's what happened after about, I'd say about seven to eight plays of this, my curiosity was uh, stoked. And um, Paul Cartledge has a series of books, but the one that uh, I picked up was called The Spartans. And... It went into great detail about um, their rise and fall on the uh, peninsula there and how they fought against Athens and went into great detail about some of the um, characters at that time period. And what was really revealing to me is playing the game after that, seeing how each of these events were so historically themed. And, and it would it would be funny. I'd look at the resources on the map even. i go, that makes so much sense. The, the designer, uh, Fran, has done a great job of emulating how the resources were gathered at that time one was uh silver heavy one was wheat heavy and i and in speaking to him uh through geek mail on the board game geek he's mentioned how he did purposely set upon trying to recreate this as thematically and historically as he could so that it did um bring about that uh, historical conflict as as accurately as he could in a board game <clears throat> so in reading the spartans by Carl carlage it really did uh enhance our gameplay and really brought the struggle to life even that much more. Yeah, that's something that I have always appreciated about, you know, uh, different games. There are games that I've played, uh, like Navajo Wars, where I've been inspired to learn more about the history. Um, there are, you know, games like Virsindas Volk. I mean, that's another one really getting me to look at that history of Cold War, East and West Germany. Uh, there, there's a, that, I think you're right. That, that is a feature, Lee, of, of a lot of these kind of war games is that they often can inspire you to go and check out a particular time period and learn a little bit more, which kind of always seems to uh, augment the experience when you play because you have those little aha moments, you know, as you look at something or you look at a card or you look at a region on the board and you're like, I totally get that now. You know, I understand that. Uh, if you read about the history of, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution in England, then the virtual link to Birkenhead will kind of make sense to you. But when you're, like, learning the game and you're looking at it, like, this is really fiddly and odd. But the history actually kind of 
uh, comes through sometimes in, in these kind of games where the designer is trying to kind of weave it in and out of not just the map, but also the, the, the mechanisms of the game as well. So uh, thanks for that tip about that book. That sounds like something that would be really a lot of fun to read if you're interested in this kind of history and interested in the theme of the game. So, uh, guys, we've talked a little bit about the resource management, right? We've talked about the battles in the game, uh, how that's done. Uh, we've talked about the importance of the resources and resource gathering and the fact that there's different regions and areas in the map that are kind of rich in one type of resource or another, which leads to a lot of inherent conflict. Can you talk a little bit, though, about the movement? Because you did mention that earlier as a troublesome thing, and I recall playing it. It was a little troublesome for me as well. So what can you tell us about sort of the movement systems in the game well it uh you know once you get a hang of it it makes perfect sense and it's well explained it's just a little counterintuitive at times um you're basically moving units to an area so i can move in one spending one move one prestige to move i can move three units from three separate areas of the map to one area they all have to be the same unit, and they have to have roughly a clear passage. Lee can't have more units in an area I'm trying to pass. So there's a little bit of, oh, I see how that works. But the manual really explains it very well as how, how to get around that. But having said that, it really leads to that some of the things we're talking about, being able to block off areas. Again, if, if Lee places, um, as, as you move through the game, it, it starts off slowly. It's kind of have a slow build. There's really you have to have eight units in a uh, in an area to have a battle. Well, the first round you can only have each side can only have three units. So by definition, you can't have any conflict. So if I've got three units in an area, Lee doesn't have an, any way to get through that area. So he's got to find a way to go around it. So like I said, the movement itself. Once you get your head around it, it makes sense, and it's pretty easy. I mean, I, we, after our first game or two, really had zero issues with that. But it it does have – it's a little counterintuitive to how a lot of other games work, I suppose. Is that a reasonable statement, Lee? Mm -hmm. And that's really important about the movement because you're going to have to move throughout the board. You can't just camp out in one spot. You could, but you're going to miss out on opportunities to gain other areas, and gaining areas gives you prestige in this game. It's also going to prevent you from going further afield to gather resources. So you are forced to move your people around this uh, map to do the uh, actions that are, that are needed, and each movement costs you prestige. It, it's crazy. You just gained for example, two prestige for taking a city into your um, network there. But now you're going to use those two prestige to move your troops to another area and then to another area after that. So you've already used the two prestige you gained earlier just in moving them across the board. And and, and that's so frustrating because you're like, it's such a limited resource. How do I accomplish everything I need to do with such a small amount of, 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 this, uh, of this resource? And on top of that, I've got to bank this for the win-in the in uh, game winning condition i've got to have prestige more so than my opponent in combination with uh your the health of your cities those two combined uh create your in game winning uh score and you're like wow i've got to accumulate this but use it not use it too much um it, it really does limit what all you want to do in a nice way and jeff one of the things about that is 
you know, the, obviously you're making progress as you're taking cities and you start blocking off your opponent. But the problem is the place that you're going to get prestige is by attacking cities or, like you mentioned, bribing them with your Proxenos. Well, if my opponent has taken most of the cities, he's running out of places to go get prestige. He now has lots of places I can go sneak in and go get prestige. And because I'm not limited by distance, I can move as far as I can get my troops as long as I don't run into a block of his troops. I could literally crisscross the map and attack a city that he wasn't expecting at all. So it really does allow when you're kind of in the ro- against the ropes, it does really allow a lot of opportunity. If you can find just a little, little place that they're not quite as well protected to get in there and, and grab some prestige. And all of a sudden you've got the ability to make some more moves and get more resources. So, yeah, you know, the movement rules are definitely interesting in this game because like you said, you're, you're, you're kind of moving to a destination. You know, it's, it, it's almost like you're looking where you're going, not how you're getting there. Um, which, as you said, it takes a, a minute to get your, your head around. And then it also, of course, as you guys alluded to, it has that sort of pinning mechanism where, you know, there's there's lots of war games where if you try to move through a region where uh, enemy troops are, that they can kind of pin you down. Like, you can't move through there. You're going to be stuck there. And so this game uh, has a little bit of that feel exactly in spades as well. So that's, that's kind of a nifty thing. But I'm really intrigued by what you just said there about this idea of you're, you almost seem to be saying that you can almost be too aggressive early in the game and sort of run out of, of opportunities for yourself. So is timing important in this game? I think that's a very reasonable statement. Yeah, it, it really is just a, a dance between, you know, you want to get as much, you want to get a hold of maybe the more impactful cities or areas that have grain, for instance, or silver. Um, those are obviously very important, so it's great to get control of those and be able to press those to gain the resources. Um, having said that, you're correct. I mean, exactly what Lee mentioned. If I move and attack a city, um, that costs me two prestige to get there. And if it's a two-level city, I get two prestige back. Well, now... It's a zero sum. It's a zero sum. If I want to then take resources from that city, which I need resources, that's a third prestige. So all of a sudden, I'm minus one prestige just to have gone all the trouble to move, attack, and then get resources. I'm actually down a prestige, and that was you know that was assuming I won won the battle at the city. So it does really stretch your, you know, the last game that I played with Lee. I mean, I. This has happened lots, but I was particularly cognizant of it. Like, my heart was pounding like I was watching a scary movie. Like, it was, I, I don't, very tense, I mean, from a lack of better description, because he did have me on the ropes for so much of the game, and I, I needed one little string to be able to pull out, start unraveling his blank, because he had me covered very well. And you know what's funny is, in those situations, I can't enjoy that success that I'm having in the game at that point because I know that it can turn around. <laughs> I can feel your side, but I can never enjoy the other side. <laughs> yeah, sometimes being the front runner and knowing you have a target on your back is no fun whatsoever. So, uh, yeah, I can I can identify with that. You know, I, I just want to pull up this thread a little bit, though, um, using your same metaphor um, of this, this economy of victory points versus in-game benefit and utility you know because i think about other games that i played like um the princes of florence where every time you score you know you kind of have to decide right then right there you know how much of my score 
is going to go towards victory points and how much is going to go as cash, you know, and in Princes of Florence, cash is what you need because it's an auction game. So you need to have money in order to compete in the auctions in order to further your, your strategy. In here, uh, this is a, the same kind of situation, you know, um, it's like, okay, I'm gaining these prestige points, which as you both pointed out is what you ultimately need to win the game. But at the same time, you need to spend it. So have either of you identified a sort of a tipping point? Um, and, and the reason I'm asking that is because, you know, I think of games like Princess of Florence. I think of games like Steam, where a lot of times, you know, I'm giving up victory points because I need money more. And then there's a certain point in the game where I, I kind of shift gears. And it's like, okay, now it's all about the victory points. And I'm not going to worry about this other stuff as much. Is there a tipping point in Polis as well? You know, I'll, I'll let Lee address his thoughts on that. But for me, no. Uh, if thing it's just the opposite. That prestige is so precious as far as allowing you to make moves, allowing you to collect resources, allowing you to attack cities, allowing you to badger your opponent and get in his way, that I don't start looking at prestige until the last round. I mean, I... You know, I'm trying to bank prestige for the next turn, so I'm able to make some moves the next turn. But really, I don't start looking at prestige as victory points till the end of the game, purely because it's such a precious commodity for everything you need to do. That if I'm the first turn thinking, "Hey, I'm gonna," boy, if 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 you're banking on anything at the end of the first turn being <laughs> that way at the end of the game, you haven't played this game much. I mean, right, just, right. You know, if you're if you're already looking at the fourth round on the first round. Um, that is optimistic at the least. So. Now, now I can see a thinking that, that I even had earlier on playing this that others might think is that the other half of the scoring besides prestige is also the strength of your cities. Each of your cities has a population uh, attributed to it, and you're going to add up the total population of your cities and add your prestige for a total score. And I can see uh, a, a thinking where you would want to just build up your cities and, and make them all healthy and, and keep growing them and... Yes, that's one way you could kind of bank points towards the end, but you need that population because if you want to create uh, sailors for your for your sea or, or uh, soldiers on land, you're going to use your population and move those cubes from your cities and now put them on the board as units. So you can't really just keep your populations at full strength and hope to have those as points to score at the end because you're using those as units that you're creating throughout the game. And if you come deplete my forces in one area, I've got to use all my population to reestablish myself and put troops out of the board. Um, so I can see how some people might think there might be a change late game where you're just focusing on you know, getting as much uh, resources to feed your population, to let them grow, and have this wonderful stack of cubes off to the side of the board of all, all of your uh, cities. But that is going to go right back onto the map and be used because you're going to... Um, you're going to come to me in battle and try and, you know, decimate my forces on one side. And I've got to repopulate my forces on the board. So that's one thing that I've seen that um, people might might think is a way that you could do that. But it, it really isn't. Yeah, I remember those cities. And I remember thinking exactly what you were talking about there when I was playing. And it's like, okay, I want to try and have my cities, you know, nice, robust population. And I was constantly, you know, it's just like, it's just like the prestige that you've been describing. You're having to strip away... <laughs> potential prestige in order to cash it into something else that you need in order to actually kind of continue to play the game 
and be in a position to try to win the game. So once again, you know, you have another kind of area here where you could potentially try to, you know, concentrate on to get, you know, your victory, but you're, you're constantly having to strip people away from your cities. At least I was. Uh, it was very rare that I could just let a city sit there nice and fat and juicy because, as you said, every time you lose a battle, every time you vacate an area, and you're like, oh, man, I really need to go and collect some more silver. Well, i got to have people there. If I don't have people there, I'm not going to be able to collect the silver. And so guess what? <laughs> you got to come from somewhere. So right. you, the city has to empty again. So, you know, say goodbye to your sons and your fathers, and <laughs> they're going to go marching out over here so they can go and get me some silver. And so, you know, again, it's, it's that kind of tension of there's all these things that I would like to do to try to accumulate my points so that I can win the game, but I, I'm constantly having to use them. So it, it is a very interesting kind of attention that builds up in that game. Yeah, I think, you know, when people talk about, like I said, I have a difficult time describing exactly what this game is, but that's the part of the Euro that it really is just a, a management game where you've got, you know, like any good Euro, I've got 10 things I want to do, but I can only do three, four of those. And so it's just trying to manage how to get those things done and kind of prioritize what the most important ones are. So it's, it's really what makes this game, I mean, magical from a lack of better term. I tit minimum 10 times a game when we play this, I just lean back and shake my head and just mention for the umpteenth time, how just elegant the game is the way the parts come together and make something that's so much greater than, than the parts. It's an amazing game. So it, you guys are really kind of setting yourselves up here as the uh, advocates for this game. And I think that's great uh, for everybody out there who's listening. Um, what advice would you give that you haven't already said? You know, this, this idea of trying to approach this game for the first time. What advice would you give to new players? Um, and is, is there any a faction-specific advice, either for Athens or Sparta, other than, you know, the inherent strengths we've already talked about. Is there any kind of other advice you would give to new players? Yeah, I would say um, really explore the game. There's We've, we've been uh, focusing on the um, combat system in this game. There's also a trading mechanism in this game where you're loading trade vessels up with uh, some of the olives, olive oil and uh, grape resources that you've gathered and you're trading those peacefully to accumulate wheat or silver or uh, or uh, other items if you flip them and explore different areas of this game don't just see it as an attacking game see it as a as a like we've talked about a resource management game and try and manage your resources as best you can whether it's to um help yourself in a fight or whether it's to uh, go off peacefully and trade and just try and uh, accumulate projects. Try and try and do everything the game allows you to do, and then you'll see how all the pieces fit together nicely. Because you might have gotten stuck just on the fighting and and being defeated because you ran out of resources to commit to your battles and fights. But if you had spent a little bit more time looking at how you could have spent those uh, resources differently in trades or in building projects, you'll find that there's there's that what I call that wiggle room to get around what you need and to find the additional resources resources of silver and prestige to to allow you to then uh attack later on in the game yeah and i jeff to add to that i i really do if someone came into this game expecting a war game i think they'll be sorely disappointed it's a light war game there is definitely some conflict to it and lee and i've lee and i've had some games that we've fought 
a lot, but we've had a number of games that we just kind of danced around the board and, you know, I wasn't in a spot to fight him on land and he wasn't in a spot to fight me at sea. And so we just kind of danced around. And when there was a place I could sneak through and get to another place I needed to be without fighting him, I would take advantage of that. So I do think that's one of the key points of this is that there's definitely some direct confrontation, but there are actually a lot of times benefits to avoiding those confrontations. So for the reasons we talked about that one side has an advantage in sea and one side has an advantage on the land, um, and to answer your question, um, I know you and I again talked a little bit before we did this podcast and I, some of the frustrations that you ran into, I completely understand. And I, I do think that exactly what Lee described, just taking time to kind of explore the game. Um, you know, if you're jumping into this game, expecting this to be kind of a war game, it, you don't have the resources to turn it into that early on. I mean, eventually you can get to a point in this game where you can start you know, pushing your, your will on the other guy. But, you know, there's there's four rounds in the game, and to a fair degree, there won't be battles in the first two rounds. I mean, it's very difficult. to It's impossible the first round, and it's difficult the second round to get battles going. So you really are kind of setting yourself up. If you wanted to be confrontational, it won't be until you're halfway through the game anyway. Um, so just as far as advice to newcomers, it would be exactly what Lee described, exploring the game and just seeing all the different things you can do because those different things are what's going to allow you to sneak just behind your buddy's back when he thinks he's got you pinned. Oh, I can go trade something over here. I can move my proxenos there and keep him safe. There's different things I can do, but I've got to know those things. And you're not going to know those the first game without exploring them some. And through that exploration, you'll learn the timing that's necessary to be able to do all the different things you want to do in the proper order. You'll never be able to do everything you want to do, but it'll allow you to um, plan a little bit better on how to get those things timed correctly. Yeah, in many ways, this kind of feels like one of those games to me where you have to sort of chain things. There, there are there are games like Newlands and uh, games like Keyflower um, where you you have to kind of chain things together so that when you activate you know certain regions that you have all your ducks in a row so that you can accomplish what you're trying to do now this uh, polis is not a chaining game but it almost feels that way you know because you you really do have so much that you have to kind of keep track of and and you know as you said the importance of of wheat i mean you, you can't overstate that and you know all of these kind of things you have to manage before you even think about going you know i remember you know when i was going and, and looking to attack my opponent later in the game yeah you know, i was always kind of in the back of my mind thinking and what am i going to do to replenish these troops that i know i'm going to lose like i'm bound to lose somebody <laughs> right. so what am i going to do well i'm going to pull them from here and if i pull them from here then that means i'm not going to get as much uh, you know from this over here and then how do i compensate for that and so there were all these kinds of logistical kind of things that i had to deal with uh the trading you know the distance like you know how far you know what you need to do to try to go and trade your goods you know, first you have to get them and then you, you have to kind of the, the trading is not as easy as it sounds either. And so there, there's a lot of kind of logistical things. And I think that's kind of one of the things we talk about resource management. We've talked about conflict, but I kind of feel there's a lot of logistics in this game as well. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, and I think that's what makes the game special is exactly what you're describing. I mean, if I want to go trade, I've got to build a boat. I've got to have enough of uh, my boats that I've got at least passage to one of those trading areas then i go and trade just for instance grapes for silver 
well, I've done several different things just to get silver. Now I'm going to use that silver to take my Proxenos somewhere else to flip a city. I mean, if my plan eventually was to take my Proxenos to a city and flip it, I had three different moves I had to figure out before I ever had a chance to even try to move my Proxenos to try to flip a city. So exactly what you're describing, saying, hey, I'm going to take my Proxenos to go flip whatever city, there were four moves before I did that, that I had to have the proper prestige for, have the proper resources for. I mean, you know, we could even go back as far as I needed to collect goods to, to be able to trade them. I mean, there really is. And what I love is, um, because of the turn uh, order in this game, you get to do two actions at a time. I get to do two actions. And because of that back and forth, for you to accomplish the four to five moves you need to do to get to that strategy you're trying to get to, I can interrupt that by something that I've done in the middle of that, which you have to respond to, which really throws your game off for that round. Yeah, it totally does. Cause I don't know how many times I, I would gear myself up to uh, uh, go and trade. And all of a sudden, you know, either my wife or Lloyd would just kind of plop an extra ship down right through the zone <laughs> that I have to pass through. And now, now I can't pass through it. And I'm like, you, you know, you, you spend a lot of time kind of like, you know, shaking your fist in the air, you know, it's <laughs> just kind of yes. like, ah, you know, how could you do this to me? And, and <laughs> you, you do, you get blocked because as you said, it's very difficult to kind of pull off a surprise because of, of how long it kind of takes you to get things together. And again, some are going to see that I think is a flaw and some are going to see that as a feature, you know, some are going to bemoan the fact that, you know, why I spent, like you just described, I spent like a whole round almost gearing up to do this one thing. And then you just bloop, put a ship down there and I'm totally hosed. And I hate that. And then other people are going to say, ah, but your opponent had to recognize the chain of events while they're trying to process their own. They had to recognize what you were trying to do. Well, why is he going up there and getting grapes? What good is that going to do him? Oh, well, okay, there's where it's probably... Okay, so that city's vulnerable. He's trying to get some graves. Does he have a ship? Yeah, he's got a ship right there. Wait a minute. I think he's going to try and ship that over here, so why don't I you know, spend one of my prestige to move my fleet over here, which is going to make it... Imp you know, so... Some are going to see that as a kind of a feature because you are really having the chance to kind of try to decipher your opponent's strategy, and then you actually have time to react to it, which can be really frustrating for the person getting reacted to, but also satisfying for the person who was able to figure it out and block it, right? Correct, and, and to my mind, that's a very chess-like element of this game where you have to put yourself in a position to do it, you know, to do well on the board, but you also have to anticipate your opponent's moves, which might interrupt or, or attack you in ways that you need to foresee. Yeah, Jeff, the, the thing you're describing, you know, you're hundred percent correct. My opponent built a boat, which blocked me, but there was an opportunity cost for my opponent that he spent a wood to create a boat and he pulled one of the guys out of his cities that again is eventual victory points, you know, so there's an opportunity cost on his part as well. And because he only gets two turns you know you mentioned that it is hard to surprise people but i will tell you several times a game lead us something that i didn't see coming at all and just <laughs> frustrated and i scratched my head i'm like how did i not see that and i would consider he and i you know above average players we've got a great grasp of this game and I, several times a game he will attack a city or you know just do something that i block something that i planned on doing that i didn't see coming at 
all. Now, I've told you that when we play games, I can't take delight when I'm in the lead, but I do take delight when I do those moments. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Well, you know, guys, uh, you've done a wonderful job of uh, describing the game. Um, you've done a, a wonderful job of kind of getting me fired up about it, which, of course, uh, you know, now I have to decide whether or not I want to try this one again, um, which is always my dilemma when I'm talking to people who love a game because they almost invariably talk me into getting it again or getting it for the first time. So uh, for those of you out there listening, you know, understand that this podcast cost me quite a bit <laughs> in, in, the, in the form of games I have to go out and get. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate the fact that, you know, you guys have not tried to deflect the questions about the things that can be challenging about trying to, to pick up this game because, you know, it was. It was a game I tried, you know, I, I played three times. And the first two times I played, the first time was with my buddy Lloyd, and we were really stuck. We were just totally stuck. We, we really just didn't – we couldn't find a way. We, we neglected to get prestige early, and so our turns were so short – and we had almost no opportunity. We didn't really understand the economy of prestige. Like to us, prestige was something you wanted to save. And so we weren't really doing anything to go out and get a good amount of prestige because we're like, well, it's too early in the game for that. I want to I wanna go and, and try and get this region so that I can get resources, not understanding that we were kind of hamstringing ourselves um, by doing that. And then the second play was with my wife. And... She was just kind of a very lukewarm about the game. She kind of felt it was too restrictive. And then my third play was back with Lloyd, and he and I kind of got further. Like, we, we understood it more. I had posed some questions on the forums, and people were very helpful in giving some advice. It's like, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to try this. And that kind of got us going again, but then it kind of just fell out of the rotation. So I appreciate the fact that you guys do understand that there's there's a, a learning kind of a curve to the game. But I think you've also done a really good job of explaining that if you can kind of plow through that, there's definitely something different here. And the the tightness of every aspect of the game is going to be something that I think there's a there's a large audience for. There's people out there who really appreciate that about uh, you know games that are challenging to play. You know, it's not just a matter of oh, you know, I was able to convert this resource before you were able to convert it, and so I win. I mean, th this is a game that you really have to work at in order to really understand all the complexities. And I think you've done a great job of showing that and sharing that. Is there anything else that you guys wanted to say about uh, the game of Polis uh, before we, we kind of, uh, um, you know, put this uh, episode to rest? You know, Jeff, the, the biggest thing really is uh, Lee and I are both, you know, pretty, pretty heavy gamers. I mean, not heavy, but as far as often, I mean, we play three or four times a month. We never miss the convention. I mean, it's, you know, we both have been playing since we were kids from back in the risk and access and allies days. And, um, you know, I, the first time that Lee introduced me to Puerto Rico, I didn't sleep for two days, just trying to get my head around everything that had happened there. Um, <laughs> I, you know, just this whole Euro thing has been such a blessing and so amazing. Um, when, when I say that Polis is my favorite game I've ever played, I don't know what number two is. And there are tons of beautiful, wonderful games I love to play. This game is so far head and shoulders above anything I've ever played that I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, it. I literally go to bed with a smile on my face every time we play this game. Every time we've ever played it, every game is distinctly different. I mean, shockingly different for what's a pretty simple, abstract game. Every game is so, so different. And I... 
I can understand completely. In fact, if anything, just to touch one more time, I could completely see the first time you play this game. Probably don't expect to finish it. You probably will wind up hitting the parking brake from a lack of prestige or something along those lines. But it is the most, by far, the most elegant, beautiful, connected uh, game. I mean, it, it feels exactly what it what it sounds like. You do feel like you're Athens versus Sparta and struggling for survival. It's it's a it's an absolutely amazing game. I traded a couple of emails with Fran Diaz, the creator of the game, and Lee mentioned it. But it, it to me, the fact that this is his first game he's ever created is just mind blowing. Knowing all these amazing game designers that are on their thirtieth game, their fiftieth game, and yet the best game I've ever played is by a guy that I've never heard of that made his first game as a print and play. I mean, it, it's remarkable. And, and to what Mike said, I agree to everything he said. But just to add to it, this is the most engaging game that I play. We'll have games that last two, three, maybe even four hours, and I'm engaged the whole time, fully thinking, even when even when it sure moves, planning, strategizing, and by the end of the time, I'm amazed at how much time has expired because I've been so into the game fully from the from the get go. Well, you know, it definitely sounds like it's a game that warrants more attention than it has received. Um, you know, I started off before we started recording kind of talking to you guys a little bit about the game and trying to explain my perspective on it. And it's one of those kind of funny things where every once in a while I run up against a game that I clearly can see there's brilliance there. For some reason, it didn't click with me. But even as I kind of moved it along in the trade pile, you know, later on, I kind of recognized that I, there was something there. That game had something. I just couldn't see it, and I couldn't figure out those nuances that you've been sharing on my own. And so that's where I kind of hope that this podcast and other reviewers and, and people who talk about games, this is where you guys, as the guests, being advocates for the game and describing the game, are going to have the greatest effect because you're able to explain these things. You're able to explain the pitfalls through your experience. You're able to give some glimpses behind the curtain so that people like myself or others who do enjoy heavier, longer games might give this a shot. Um, a game with a rating this high with that few ratings really does scream that to me. This, this notion of, you know, a, a rating of eight is phenomenal. I'm fortunate enough to know some publishers and, and to uh, know designers and get to hang out with them. And, you know, boy, they talk about, hey, you know, a seven, don't right. laugh at a seven, man. A seven is good. You know, a seven is, is really good in this industry. If you can hit a seven, you know, that, that, that's an accomplishment. And, you know, I think to myself, the dreaded seven, you know, as a reviewer kind of a guy, to me, a seven is the epitome of that's a really solid game. You know, that that's a solid game. I enjoyed that, but not necessarily anything special. I mean, to me, to be special, you need that eight, nine, ten. And there's so many sevens out there right now. And so when you see a game that's rated this highly, that's been around this long, and, and that's another really crucial part, it's not unusual to see a game rated an 8 or even above in the first six months after its release or even before its release in some cases with Kickstarter buzz and all that kind of stuff, right? But this game has been around for a while, you know? Um, I would argue that it's only been widely available since 2013, not 2012, but it has been widely available for a couple of years now, and yet it's, it sits at such a high rating with such a low number of ratings that I think this is definitely one of those hidden gems. So I want to thank you guys for reaching out and suggesting 
the episode because this is a game that you know I had of course seen and and had a little bit of experience with, but it wouldn't have been something that I would have felt comfortable talking about because I just didn't have enough experience. So thanks to the both of you for uh, uh, agreeing to be on the show tonight. Well, thank you. We are honored and uh, really glad to get this game a little bit more exposure. It's found a niche market so far, but I think it deserves a much wider audience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you guys uh, uh, definitely for uh, um, being willing to do that uh, for us here tonight on the show. So, uh, Mike and uh, Leah, I, I just want to say uh, thanks for agreeing to be on the podcast tonight. Yeah, Jeff, it was a pleasure. Really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Great time. Great time.